on the People Scientist podcast, I am doing a recap of the year 2019 and the wide array of topics that I have covered from neuroscience to nutrition to recent advances in medical technology. Today, I'm going to be covering the top five most listened to episodes and providing any updates on those topics since I published the episode. Can you guess what the top five most popular topics were? Keep listening on to find out only here on the People Scientist Podcast. You are listening to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on nutrition, health, and medicine. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast, where every week I arm you with some scientific evidence so we can all lead the healthy lives we want to live. Today for episode 41, we are doing a special episode that is a recap of the year 2019 and the top most popular and listened to podcast episode topics. Can you take a guess as to the top topics of the year? We've covered a diverse range of topics. My very first episode, was about us using our own neurobiology to fight overeating or food addiction. I discussed the role of a particular brain region called the lateral habenula and how it could potentially play an important role in sugar withdrawal. I mentioned in that episode how the room or space that we eat in is a trigger that could induce withdrawal symptoms if we try to avoid those foods in that space. Then I gave some great suggestions on how to use our own neurobiology to fight those withdrawal symptoms so we can stay on track with our healthy eating habits. That episode is still my personal favorite. I've also covered CRISPR gene editing and how it is being investigated for cancer treatment. We have discussed the scientific evidence of marijuana or cannabis with Dr. Jacqueline Furland. I provided evidence on plant-based diets, the truth about high fructose corn syrup, I have a vitamin mini-series dispersed throughout this podcast as well. I covered evidence on vaping, and I even shared my own work published in Nature this year on how nicotine may increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. Looking back on this year, I'm really proud of the episodes that I've put out. I've put out 40 episodes so far. When I started this People Scientist platform about a year and a half ago, I, I started it initially because... I wanted to share some scientific knowledge that I had about nutrition and lifestyle with my family and friends. Because whenever I went to family gatherings, you know, people would ask me questions about, oh, you know, I have high blood pressure, what should I do? Or what's the evidence on, you know, what I can do for my diabetes? So this podcast platform was a way for me to be able to share that information with them. But then the reasons for why I continued this platform expanded as time went on. I wanted to continue it because I wanted to be a trusted source of knowledge, not just for my family and friends, but for everyone. So I figured if more people happened to listen to the episodes or follow my accounts, then that was just an added bonus. 
I am grateful to all of you listening to the episodes, and I hope that all of you have become a little bit smarter, more empowered, and healthier because of the platform. That is my ultimate goal. And if I have achieved that, then I am one happy scientist. So for today's episode, I'd like to reflect back on the top five listened to episodes. I will also provide some brief highlights of those episodes and share if there have been any updates in the scientific evidence since I published those episodes. So let's start off from the bottom of our top five list. The fifth most listened to episode was, can you guess? Episode three, where I share some scientific evidence on the ketogenic diet. So here are some core takeaways from episode three. The keto diet is what we call a fasting mimetic diet, meaning that the body is in a fasted mode generating ketones for energy when following this diet. On this diet, insulin levels tend to be quite low and glucagon, the fasting hormone, is high. The reason being is because fat, which constitutes the grand majority of this diet, does not induce insulin, the building fat storage hormone of the body. So the classic ketogenic diet is about 80 to 90% of calories coming from fat. So it really is primarily fat. 10 to 15% of calories come from protein, classically, and the remaining very small proportion coming from carbohydrates. Typically, people try to stay under about 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrates a day. Protein also stimulates insulin, which would take us out of ketosis. So one misconception is that people think it's just a low-carb diet, but it's not. It's actually a little bit on the lower side of protein as well. So it's adequate protein being about 10 to 15% protein classically, but I have seen some people go up to 20, 25% protein, but it just might mean that they aren't going to be in that level of ketosis as significantly as someone who is consuming 10 to 15% protein. So essentially, it is a high-fat diet. One important thing about the ketogenic diet is that some people forget or do not know is that fiber can be included in the carbohydrate content on nutrition labels. But fiber does not count toward your carb count here. So for example, avocados, flaxseed, and chia seeds are great to add to a ketogenic diet as their carbohydrate content is mostly fiber, and that fiber would not count toward your carbohydrate amount for the day. Now, a little bit of scientific evidence on the diet is that the ketogenic diet was actually originally created in the early 1900s, the 1920s, for children with treatment-resistant epilepsy. Now, epilepsy is a condition that is characterized by seizures. Now, seizures are a result of an imbalance between the excitation and inhibition of activity in our brain. So with seizures, there's too much excitation in the brain. Now, the ketogenic diet has shown to alter this balance by reducing glutamate, the excitatory neurotransmitter, and by increasing GABA, the inhibitory or quieting down neurotransmitter in the brain of animals. This is the hypothesized mechanism by which it reduces seizures in children with epilepsy. Because the ketogenic diet changes the energy dynamics of the brain, it may have some health benefits in regard to mood disorders, metabolic health, and weight loss. But the clinical data is not necessarily very strong in all of these areas. 
This diet can result in weight loss, but calorie intake is still important to keep in mind if you want to lose weight, as too many calories will prevent burning our own body's fat stores. This diet can potentially lead to rapid water weight loss because glycogen, your carbohydrate energy storage in your liver and muscles, holds onto a lot of water. And you'll burn that up quickly when going on the ketogenic diet, but then if you eat carbohydrates again, After being on the ketogenic diet, then that can lead to rapid water weight and glycogen weight regain. Because of the restoration of the glycogen stores, which hold on to a lot of water. Now do keep in mind that this diet may be very restrictive, resulting in nutrient deficiencies and therefore side effects because of those nutrient deficiencies. So making sure to consume a variety of low carbohydrate vegetables, healthy fats, and whole proteins is very important. I personally recommend eating several servings of low-carb vegetables such as leafy greens, bell peppers, broccoli, cauliflower, zucchini, etc. with seeds such as chia, flax, hemp that have healthy omega-3 fatty acids and plenty of fiber. Other healthy fat sources such as avocado, salmon, sardines, coconut oil, and flaxseed oil can also be added to the healthy diet. The ketogenic diet also often contains supplementation with medium-chain triglyceride oils, which clinically is proving to be scientifically very interesting because medium-chain triglyceride oils are converted into ketones in the body quite quickly. And as a result, it could have potential for improving cognitive function in Alzheimer's disease. The reason being is because Alzheimer's disease is characterized by having improper use of glucose or sugars by the neurons in the brain. So the brain isn't being fueled properly in Alzheimer's disease. But ketones can provide an alternative fuel source for the neurons of the brain. As a result, there is some preliminary clinical research showing that adding medium-chain triglyceride oils to the diet can improve cognitive function in those with mild or early-onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, have there been any exciting updates since I published episode three? Well, Zoltan in 2019 in the journal Current Opinion in Psychiatry details how individuals living with schizophrenia appear to have abnormal glucose metabolism and abnormal mitochondrial functioning of the prefrontal cortex of the brain. Now, this was concluded by analyzing postmortem tissue. Thus, it was hypothesized that the ketogenic diet, which offers that alternative fuel source of ketones to the brain may be of benefit. Now, animal studies that in rodents model schizophrenia and in a few case studies in humans, the ketogenic diet does seem to have some benefit in the symptoms of schizophrenia, such as reducing hallucinations and psychotic symptoms. So there is some preliminary evidence to support perhaps it could have benefit in schizophrenia, but do keep in mind that the data supporting this is still preliminary. Cox and colleagues in the journal Diabetes and Metabolic Syndrome Clinical Research and Reviews this year reported how a ketogenic diet coupled with high-intensity interval training and solution-focused psychotherapy was able to significantly reduce parameters of type 2 diabetes and depression in one patient. So it was a case report study. Her average daily glucose measurements declined from 216 milligrams per deciliter to 96. 
Another indication of her insulin resistance and her HDL ratios and triglyceride to triglyceride improved by 75% on average. And her measures of clinical depression and self-efficacy normalized. The 12-week individualized treatment intervention served to essentially reverse 26 years of her type 2 diabetes and improve two and a half decades of chronic depressive disorder. So this case report really highlights how in one particular case study, adding exercise, a ketogenic diet, and solution-focused therapy could really turn around someone's health and mental, mental health as well. But again, do keep in mind, this is one case report study, but still a very interesting one. Okay, so now on to the next top episode on our list. Can you guess what the fourth most listened to episode is? It is episode 14, Let's Talk Alcohol. Now in this episode, I discuss how long-term alcohol abuse can literally change the brain in a negative way, making the brain think that it needs alcohol in order to survive. And that when someone has had chronic alcohol abuse for a long period of time, it's literally characterized as a brain disease because the brain has changed so much. But you see, there's a common thread about how all drugs affect the brain. Whatever effect the drug has on someone, the after or withdrawal effects are the opposite. So think about it. If alcohol makes you feel relaxed, sleepy, and less stressed, Then the next morning after drinking, perhaps you'll feel the opposite. Maybe you'll feel anxious, not able to sleep, and agitated. And there's a reason for that. It's called rebound hyperexcitability. Alcohol quiets down brain regions involved in stress and anxiety. The next morning, these brain regions have a rebound effect in which their activity is higher than normal. Now, in severe cases of alcohol abuse, this rebound hyperexcitability can lead to more risk-taking behavior, anxiety, depression, and even seizures in more severe cases. Some medications to help with chronic alcohol use disorder include quieting down that brain activity. So, for example, gabapentin recently has been used in alcohol withdrawal symptoms because gabapentin increases GABA activity, that inhibitory quieting down neurotransmitter of the brain. This also raises the intriguing possibility of if the ketogenic diet can help with alcohol withdrawal, as the diet appears to increase GABA and reduce glutamate in certain parts of the brain. And as we know, alcohol withdrawal is characterized by having too much excitation or too much glutamate in certain parts of the brain. I'm actually hoping to conduct this study in my lab in the new year, and time will tell, because a lot of my research does focus upon alcohol use disorder. Because of my nutrition background, I have an interest to see if the ketogenic diet or if nutrition can help with alcohol withdrawal symptoms. So hopefully I can conduct that study in the new year, Um, but so far there is no direct evidence to support the ketogenic diet for alcohol withdrawal, but it is just a hypothesis of mine. There hasn't been too much new evidence to look at any big findings on alcohol use disorder. There is something in regard to the glymphatic system, which I'm actually going to mention in the next topic. So our third most listened to episode was episode 16, the fascinating link between testosterone, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and inflammation. 
Testosterone is a sex hormone that is present in both men and women, but testosterone is about eight times higher in men versus women. Testosterone is produced from the cholesterol in our body and is considered an anabolic hormone, meaning that it promotes muscle growth. Now, testosterone sleep, inflammation, insulin sensitivity, body weight, and risk of Alzheimer's disease all seem to be very connected and related. Obesity, lack of exercise, and inflammation are associated with lower testosterone levels. Another thing closely linked to testosterone is quality of sleep. Low quality sleep can reduce testosterone levels as testosterone peaks during deep REM sleep. Sleep studies show that if sleep is restricted, then circulating testosterone levels fall. Poor quality sleep also is associated with a poor diet, obesity, diabetes, and Alzheimer's, which is a vicious circle as these things can further negatively impact sleep quality as well. If you want to hear the studies that I mentioned on these topics, just go back to the original episode as I reference all the original studies there as well. Now, sleep is very important because it is during sleep that our brain clears itself of metabolic waste. This system that does this is the newly discovered glymphatic system. The glymphatic system is absolutely essential for the normal functioning of the brain. Most importantly, beta amyloid plaques, which are implicated in the cause and progression of Alzheimer's disease, are cleared out from the brain by the glymphatic system during deep sleep. The glymphatic system is a recently discovered waste clearance system that utilizes a unique system of perivascular tunnels formed by astroglial cells to promote efficient elimination of soluble proteins and metabolites from the central nervous system. But besides waste elimination, the glymphatic system also helps brain-wide distribution of several compounds, including glucose, fatty acids, amino acids, growth factors, and neuromodulators. So it's also like the delivery system of the brain in a way. The glymphatic system functions mainly during sleep and is largely inhibited during wakefulness. Nettergaard is a scientist at the head of this research. She published in the journal Science in the year 2013 that metabolic waste, including beta amyloid produced by the brain, is cleared out at a much faster rate during deep sleep in mice than it is during awake hours. And if deep sleep is compromised, then the removal of metabolic waste and beta amyloid from the brain is also compromised. So in order to maintain healthy testosterone levels in overall health and brain health, one needs to obtain a healthy weight, lower fat mass, particularly around the stomach, because that is associated with sleep apnea, to exercise regularly, eat an anti-inflammatory diet, because inflammation may reduce melatonin levels, which are important for sleep, and to make efforts for good quality sleep. You know, there's been a lot of research showing to avoid bright light an hour before bed, to have dark curtains on your windows, a cooler bedroom, a warm shower before bed, which will reduce your core temperature as well. All of these things can help for a better quality sleep. The good news is many clinical trials report that weight loss or exercise increase testosterone levels. For example, in 2010, Vingren published a review in the journal Sports Medicine that detailed how heavy resistance training caused an acute spike in testosterone levels. 
Now, the verdict is still out on whether or not certain diets like the ketogenic diet, magnesium, or zinc supplements may help with testosterone levels. But making sure that your diet is rich in magnesium, zinc, and healthy fats is always a good suggestion for everyone. Foods that contain magnesium, zinc, and healthy fats and have anti-inflammatory properties include flax oil, flax seed, chia seed, hemp seed, walnuts, pumpkin seeds, almonds, beans, and green leafy vegetables. Now, have there been any updates on this topic? Well, on the topic of the glymphatic system in sleep, there have been quite a few updates, as this is an emerging field in neuroscience. A few studies have been published this year investigating the functioning of the glymphatic system under different conditions in rodents. They have noted, for example, that chronic alcohol drinking and chronic high blood pressure or hypertension can impair the functioning of the glymphatic system in animals. So these may predispose to improper filtering of the metabolic waste of the brain and perhaps could reduce cognitive function and an increased risk of dementia. But far more research, particularly in humans, is needed in this area. In regard to testosterone, Buckberg in the Journal of the Endocrine Society was published in August. They performed a meta-analysis on whether or not testosterone supplementation increased cognitive functioning. They included 23 independent randomized controlled trials, of which none treated individuals that were hypogonadal, meaning that the testosterone supplementation was not in individuals with particularly low testosterone levels. So perhaps it wasn't the best population to look at. But nevertheless, they found that there was no significant improvement in overall cognitive functioning with testosterone supplementation. So essentially, adding testosterone does not seem to increase cognitive functioning or reduce the risk of Alzheimer's in men. Now for our second most listened to episode. Can you take a guess as to what it was? This one actually kind of surprised me. The second most popular topic was apple cider vinegar. Now, some core takeaways on this topic include apple cider vinegar contains acetic acid and some polyphenol antioxidants. The strongest data is in support of apple cider vinegar to lower blood glucose levels and glycated hemoglobin levels, or otherwise abbreviated HbA1c. The clinical trials show that when apple cider vinegar is combined with a carbohydrate meal, such as when combined with a white bagel, white pasta, white rice, that it can lower blood glucose levels after the meal. The hypothesized mechanism is that apple cider vinegar may reduce the digestion of carbohydrates. A small amount of evidence suggests that adding apple cider vinegar to your daily routine routine may lower body fat and triglyceride levels and induce feelings of fullness and reduce appetite. But it is cautioned that apple cider vinegar may cause feelings of nausea So to please be cautious with apple cider vinegar intake and to stop taking it if you feel or experience these feelings. Apple cider vinegar is also quite acidic, so it is suggested to dilute the vinegar or to mix with food before consuming. Apple cider vinegar is also shown to have very effective antimicrobial properties against certain bacteria and yeast. Now, the effective dose of apple cider vinegar ranges from 10 milliliters to 20 milliliters per day on average. Now, have there been any new clinical trials published? Thinaleolin this year in the Medicine Journal published a clinical trial in 60 healthy medical students that did not have diabetes. 
They asked the students to consume 30 milliliters of apple cider vinegar or distilled water daily for five days. And they measured many parameters such as blood pressure, blood glucose, body weight, heart rate, etc. Now, the only significant change was that they observed a reduction in diastolic blood pressure in the apple cider vinegar group. On average, at baseline, their diastolic blood pressure was 79 millimeters of mercury, and it dropped to 70 after five days. But there were no significant changes in their blood glucose, body weight, or heart rate after five days of consuming apple cider vinegar. So perhaps in individuals that do not have diabetes or have normal blood glucose levels, they won't see a benefit with apple cider vinegar addition to the diet. Lou and colleagues this year in the Journal of Pediatric Dermatology tested whether apple cider vinegar application to the skin could help treat atopic dermatitis because of its antimicrobial properties. They asked 22 participants, now 11 had atopic dermatitis and 11 without, to soak their forearms in 0.5% apple cider vinegar for 10 minutes daily. The scientists noted that Apple cider vinegar applied in this manner did not improve skin health or symptoms of atopic dermatitis. In fact, this method of apple cider vinegar appeared to increase water loss and reduce hydration status of the skin, so it actually made the skin more dry and dehydrated. Some participants also complained of mild side effects, such as irritation. So perhaps instead of soaking the arms in half percent apple cider vinegar for 10 minutes, perhaps an emollient or a cream containing apple cider vinegar or other methods may be better tolerated. So now for our final and most popular episode and topic so far. Can you guess what it is? Drum roll, please. It is episode 28, the latest update on intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. That is by far our most popular and listened to episode. Now in this top episode, I discuss the numerous clinical trials conducted on time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting. There is a lot of good quality evidence on this topic coming from well-designed clinical trials that are published in some of the top journals in the world. Many beneficial effects have been observed from intermittent fasting and time-restricted eating. For example, in the intervention clinical trials, reductions in inflammation and symptoms of chronic inflammatory conditions have been noted, improvements in mood, induction of that beneficial cellular cleanup process autophagy, increased metabolic adaptability, increased expression of genes associated with longevity and successful aging, improved measures of heart health, and reduced risk factors for diabetes have all been observed. Now, observational studies that show associations illustrate that fasting is associated with a reduced onset of diabetes, heart disease, and is associated with a reduced risk of breast cancer recurrence. Animal studies show even further benefit for survival and longevity. Now remember, there are different protocols for fasting, and all show some benefit. There is time-restricted eating, where you eat every day, but you eat within a smaller time frame every day, such as within a 6-9 to hour window, which is the window that most clinical trials have looked at. But some individuals may eat within an even shorter time window. 
Now, the intermittent fasting protocols such as alternate day fasting, where you fast every second day by either eating no calories on your fasting day, but just consuming water, black coffee, plain black tea, plain green tea, or flavored carbonated water every second day. Or even some alternate day fasting protocols allow 400 to 500 calories on the fasting days. So the alternate day fasting protocol, I think, is the most popular fasting protocol as of late in clinical trials. It's interesting because of the time-restricted eating protocol, they showed in one clinical trial that even a 19-hour overnight fast increased the expression of genes involved in longevity and successful aging. Now remember, fasting is not for everyone, particularly may not be appropriate for children, the very elderly, or those at risk for binge eating disorder. And one thing that's really important that I want people to keep in mind is that if you practice regular fasting, please remember to eat well on your eating day so that you don't have any nutrient deficiencies. So please make sure to get plenty of healthy omega-3 fatty acids, whole proteins, vitamins and minerals and fiber, and to take electrolytes if you're following an extended fast. So if you want to hear about the studies or more details of that research, then make sure to go back and listen to episode 28 when I go into more detail. Now, have there been any recent publications on time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting since that episode? Well, in the journal Nutrients this month by Grahauer and Horn, they discuss if intermittent fasting can be practiced in individuals with type 1 and type 2 diabetes, because this has been a topic of discussion for a while. Now, the authors conclude that based on the limited evidence, the authors conclude that when done under the supervision of the patient's healthcare provider and with appropriate personal blood glucose monitoring, intermittent fasting can be safely undertaken in patients with diabetes. Now, the most immediate risk with intermittent fasting is obviously the potential for low blood glucose levels in patients, particularly if they're taking blood sugar-lowering medications that are associated with low blood sugar levels, such as those taking insulin and sulfonylureas. All other anti-diabetic medications are less often associated with low blood sugars, and the risk is therefore considerably less, but it is still a consideration. Specific attention should be paid to three considerations for those that have diabetes that want to follow fasting. With their physician, they need to discuss medication adjustment, the frequency of glucose monitoring, and their fluid intake. For example, using less insulin or skipping the dose of sulfonylurea may be considered by the physician during the fasting days or times. Now, This paper in particular provides some specific suggestions such as this. So perhaps this paper could be shared with your physician and you can discuss ways around it if this is something that you want to approach. There have also been a couple of reviews and correspondence papers on intermittent fasting during chemotherapy or radiation for cancer treatment. Now, Some preliminary animal data suggests that fasting may reduce cancer growth and could enhance the actions of some chemotherapy agents to kill the cancer. However, some also caution that fasting during cancer treatment may also place the individual at a disadvantage in terms of energy and nutrition status. So caution is warranted and should also be discussed with your physician, of course. 
There was another clinical trial on alternate day fasting in individuals with metabolic syndrome in the journal Complementary Therapies in Medicine by Parvaresh and colleagues this year. They included 70 individuals into the trial. Half the individuals followed daily calorie restriction, while the other half followed alternate day fasting for eight weeks. Their protocol was a little bit different for alternate day fasting. Here they allowed the participants to eat 25% of their daily calorie needs on their fasting days, then 100% of their calorie needs on their eating days. But then on Friday, it was kind of like their cheat day. They were unlimited and were not restricted in their calorie intake. Now, the alternate day fasting protocol was superior to daily calorie restriction in that the participants exhibited greater weight loss. The alternate day fasting group lost 4.1 kilograms or 9 pounds, and the daily calorie restriction group lost 1.7 kilograms or 3.7 pounds. The alternate day fasting group also saw greater reductions in waist circumference by 4 versus 1 centimeter. They saw an improvement in their systolic blood pressure, which dropped by 13 millimeters of mercury in the fasting group versus only 1 millimeter of mercury in the daily calorie restriction group. Their fasting plasma glucose also dropped by more than 5 millimeters um, per deciliter versus no change in the calorie restriction group. However, there was no significant difference between the two groups for their triglyceride, total cholesterol, LDL, HDL cholesterol, diastolic blood pressure, or fasting insulin concentration. So this is another clinical trial to add to the topic of intermittent fasting, that there can be some benefits to an alternate day fasting protocol in individuals. Now, I want to end off this episode with some of my own personal favorite things that I've learned this year as a result of the podcast. And I would say that the first most interesting thing to me as a person that's doing neuroscience research right now is how there is a commonality across depression, anxiety, PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, and drug addiction in regard to its neurobiology. Research studies are providing evidence that too much glutamate and excitatory activity in certain brain regions are implicated in these mental mood disorders or mental illnesses. So there's too much excitation or excitotoxicity. Now, if the therapy can reduce the glutamate or reduce the excitatory activity, either through ketamine, the ketogenic diet, or drugs such as gabapentin, then there appears to potentially be benefit to mood and measures of drug addiction. So I thought that that was really interesting, that there's this common thread across a lot of these mood disorders or mental illnesses. The second thing I learned that was the most fascinating is in regard to lipid peroxides and polyunsaturated fatty acids. Now, one of my areas of expertise is fats in our diet and the fats in our body and how these relate to our health. But I never really took the time to put certain things together, like how oils that contain a lot of polyunsaturated fatty acids, such as canola oil, flaxseed oil, walnut oil, soybean oil, corn oil, These oils should not be heated in general, just as a general rule, because when these oils are heated, those polyunsaturated fatty acids are very prone to peroxidation, and peroxidation or lipid peroxides can be very detrimental to our health. 
Lipid peroxides have been implicated in heart disease and the production of atherosclerosis or clogged arteries. As a result, it's also been implicated in the risk for ischemic stroke, as well as in it has been implicated in cancer cell growth as well. So rather, oils low in polyunsaturated fatty acids such as coconut oil, olive oil, and avocado oil are best for cooking with. However, these other oils like flax oil that are rich in omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids can be a part of a healthy diet because omega-3 fatty acids are essential to our health and our diet and have many benefits such as reducing inflammation. But these oils can also be oxidized within our body, which could turn them into potentially toxic compounds. So in order to avoid this peroxidation inside of our body, we need to try our best to avoid oxidants such as air pollution, cigarette smoke, high sugar diets, and fried fatty foods. And instead, add to our diet antioxidant-rich foods that contain vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin A, and beta carotene, such as fresh fruits and vegetables. Now, if you want to learn more about fatty acids, lipid peroxidation, inflammation in our health, then you can tune into episode 10, where I go into a lot of detail in that topic. And then my third most favorite thing that I had learned as a result of researching for this podcast was about skincare. So I have two episodes all about the scientific evidence of skincare. And the biggest takeaway I took from these skincare episodes are that if you have dry skin, which I in particular I do, adding natural moisturizing factors that our skin naturally produces to hydrate our skin, including glycerol, hyaluronic acid, urea, and amino acids to the skin, can help with the hydration and health of the skin. But then afterward, after applying some of those natural moisturizing factors, to follow up by adding a barrier, such as an oil like coconut oil, in order to keep those hydrators in the skin. I personally follow this now, and I find that it has made a big difference to my skin health. So those are my personal three favorite things that I learned as a result of the podcast. Now, what are your favorite things that you learned as a result of the podcast? Let me know on any of my social media platforms, such as Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. I would love to hear some of your favorite topics or things that you've learned. Now, I wanted to end off the last episode of 2019 by thanking all of you for listening and for making the podcast what it is. Many of you have given suggestions for episode topics and have provided great feedback on how to improve the podcast. You have contributed and made the podcast the success that it is. So thank you so much for that. I hope I have achieved my goal of adding a little bit of knowledge to your day so you can feel empowered and healthier because of that. I hope that I can be a trusted source for all of you by providing scientific evidence to a lot of the hot topics that are out there today. If I have achieved that, then my goal has been reached. If you are enjoying the podcast, then please tell a friend about the show so that they can become a part of the People Scientist Army as well. So that is a wrap, my People Scientist Army, this week on the People Scientist Podcast, the top five highlighted episodes of 2019. We talked about the impact of the ketogenic diet on the brain's energy dynamics and the potential implications of this. 
We discuss the effects of alcohol on our brain and the rebound hyper-excitability that we may experience after drinking alcohol. We discuss the importance of sleep and its effect on testosterone levels and the risk for chronic disease. We talked about the glymphatic system, that newly discovered waste clearance system of the brain that's active primarily during our deep REM sleep. We talked about the impact of apple cider vinegar on blood sugar levels. And lastly, we highlighted the high quality data in support of time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting for metabolic health. Next Sunday, there will not be a People Scientist podcast episode as I am flying back to Canada to visit my family and to have some great quality time with them over the Christmas break. So the next People Scientist podcast will be Sunday, January 5th in the new year, 2020. Isn't that crazy to hear 2020? We're starting a new decade. That's pretty exciting though. So I hope all of you have a great end of your 2019 year and I will meet you back here the same time and the same place on January 5th. Bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates. Oh,